Hello and welcome to Roses Radio, Voices Saving Lives. This podcast is presented by Roses in the Ocean, an Australian-based national not-for-profit that's been founded in order to change the way suicide is spoken about, understood and prevented. We hope that by presenting lived experience stories along with the insights and wisdom of the courageous people who share them, we will help to dispel some of the myths about suicide, improving the suicide literacy of our communities and contributing to reducing the fear, discrimination and judgement that sadly still inhibits our ability to support others and seek help. At Roses in the Ocean we believe that most suicides are preventable and we need to be able to openly speak about suicide. So please, open your hearts and minds to the possibilities that a deeper understanding of suicide can bring to saving lives. Hello folks, welcome to Roses Radio and today I've got the pleasure of being able to talk to Amanda. Amanda, welcome to Roses Radio. Thanks, Lane. You um, you didn't talk about your story for a very long time and then all of a sudden you talk about it all the time and you've written a book about your experience. What shifted for you? Well... Yes, you are correct on on all counts there. So I hadn't shared or really spoken about my lived experience or my story ever. And what changed is, you know, a few years back, I was just walking around a local regional field days pavilion and I saw this site, if you like, or this, you know, stand that had the word suicide on this banner and it said stamp out suicide and I was actually taken back I thought what what are they doing what, what's going on here and I, I immediately was drawn to say you know help me understand what what is your team what are you how are you doing this I'd never really um understood that it's okay to to to, to a to talk about it but secondly to even have any sort of community group that would be openly publicly um, talking about suicide and they, they had these little packets there of lifesavers and they were actually gifting them to people saying this is just a little something for you to remember if times are tough there are people here to help you to talk and I was totally drawn to this group of lovely people so from there I went to a meeting and I still remember that first meeting it was in a hotel in the country and we were sitting around at lunch and people were like it was like a, a group where we could have been talking about what were we growing in our garden or what what had we learnt to cook recently. The word suicide was flowing and, you know, I was just sitting back thinking this is really quite overwhelming. Well, I left that meeting. They, they hadn't been working together too long. I think it was about 12 months they'd been running this, this group left the meeting and I came out as treasurer, which is always what happens when you're the, <laughs> the new guy that goes into a meeting, but um, they learned of my banking experience. And from that, I was introduced to Roses in the Ocean. And I went to a number of um, sessions with Roses in the Ocean, one of them being a national summit. But one of the most valuable things that I did was um, I was given the opportunity not to just learn how to 
share my story, but I think more importantly was to to write my story down and actually use those words that have been inside me all of my life. Um, you'd always had an intent to write a book, hadn't you? It, it had been something that had had been in the background for you, but you'd never quite known what to do with that? I'm not sure if I thought I could write a book, but I knew that there was a lot more that I that I that I wanted to be able to do but I didn't know what it was. I knew there was something that I inside me that was perhaps not explored or, or unfinished. And so here I was, um then I would have been about forty five years old, um, losing dad at nine. So I'd I'd gone pretty well, you know, thirty six years without ever really sharing my story as such, I mean, people that were friends and family, of course, had some understanding of circumstance and might have seen some of the way, you know, you behaved or probably saw a lot of the outside of who Amanda was. But at no point had anybody really probably seen what I was feeling on the inside. And that was part of me spending a couple of days, literally, writing my story and um it was that in itself was quite an experience was it hard to start no do you you remember okay so you actually it just intuitively knew what this needed to be yeah yeah look i I, i've still got really strong memory of we would we we broke up into little quiet places and i was sitting outside and there's tables and chairs and i remember looking across and seeing people tapping their pen thinking hmm where do I start here? And I think, you know, facilitators like yourself would move around and say, you know, are you okay here? Do you need a hand? Well, my pen didn't stop. It just literally, I remember getting that sore rider's cramp with your wrist was just like, I needed a break. And it went pages and pages and pages. And I've still got that book. And I still refer to that. That's, that's my story. And, you know, that's, that's my notes. And I, I still, I read it sometimes, not to share with anyone, but just to remind myself that that's what my journey has been and that's what I can use to help others. You, In your story, you describe your dad as your hero. Um, help me understand how that tag became associated with him in your mind. That my dad was a hero on a number of levels. So I was the youngest, or well, I still am, the youngest of three girls. And we lived in the Adelaide Hills. And my dad was my hero. Mum and dad, um, we were in the Adelaide Hills. And at that time, it was a really small community. And he had gone there as the local detective and started up a new CIB, if you like. And... Um, So he was a long-term police officer, yeah? Yes. Okay. Yes, with SA Police. And so he had gone from being pretty well a metro city bloke in uniform to having this promotion of being the local detective. And the local detective had this, you know, I suppose, um, status and and still does in a lot of particularly country towns. You know, he's the detective. And... um, so I was really proud, you know, Dad would come to my school and he would present awards or he would do give talks and, 
it didn't sort of matter where we went in the community. He was respected and people would stop and talk to him. And um, so from that perspective, he was a hero. And he's, I've since learned, I've learned a lot about my dad in, in capturing my story and writing my book. Because um, you spoke to a lot of people about your dad. I, I mean, your recollections of your dad are from zero to nine years of age. So exactly. So much of the research must yeah. have come from others who knew him. Absolutely. So I had two goals in writing my book, two purposes, if you like. One was to meet my dad because I realised I didn't have my own memories. Yeah. And I'm not sure that anybody has a lot of clear actual um, relationships with anyone when you were younger than nine you have little snippets. I've got little visuals of, of um, you know, dad would cross his legs and I would sit on his foot and he would bounce. Or, you know, even mum reminds me that I would meet dad at the door when he got home late at night and I would have his slippers and I would put both of his feet in his slippers. They're not really my memories. So I thought, whoa, hell, dad would have been, you know, 76 this year and a lot of his peers and his friends and his mates are either perhaps not long for this world or they've passed. So if I didn't meet them, I would lose that opportunity to meet my dad. So I interviewed probably 20 or more, maybe 25, and a lot of them feature in, in my book from both the funny stories to the criminal investigations to the stress to the what sort of bloke was he? And, and one of the things, you know, going back to your question about why was he a hero, a lot of them said he was he was tagged or, or branded to be the next commissioner of police. Um, he is still one of the few youngest um, commissioned officers in this state. He was made a commissioned officer at, at 36. And um, that's a pretty young age to be what they term as a boss um so there was there was a lot of um things that I was really proud of um you know I was really proud of my dad in the fact that you know he loved us and cared for us and everything he did was for his girls but it was also that that status of what he had the respect I believe from the SA police force right through the point you know the day of his funeral you know, all the traffic was stopped in Adelaide Metro and we had police on each intersection in uniform saluting us. Mm. Um, I knew that he was respected, so I couldn't help but feel that he was so much, somewhat of a hero. What did you learn about him from uh, his counterparts in the police force? What was the, what's the thing that stands out from those 20 interviews? Um, everyone's mate and when I say that and mum very much has always given me the same impression if you ask dad who his best mate was he didn't have one but he was everyone's best mate um, he was a social absolute butterfly right from if he wasn't in the lunchroom cracking people up with practical jokes and caring about people and helping them sand their floors on a weekend or, 
you know, it's just a really empathetic, caring bloke. He would be in the pub of an evening, supposedly gathering all of his intel, because that's what D's detectives did. Um, networking and you know and you know I have great memories of that that's one thing I do remember we sort of grew up in the pub and I say we were pub kids in the right way I mean I'd be tired so I'd sleep under the pool table and the local publican they were really really good people Um, and it was sort of like a family connection that we had in in a small community so people if they described him in words and I've been asked this before um he had integrity, he was honest, very caring and full of full of humour. That's how he, I think, from what I understand now, that's how he coped. You were nine years old when your dad took his life. Take us back to nine-year-old self and, and um, what that experience from a memory perspective feels like for you. So we had just literally two weeks before we lost Dad, we had moved into a new home, four-bedroom brick home that had just been built on the outskirts of Mount Barker in the Adelaide Hills. 14 acres. We had a horse, the tractor, the full bit, and that was Dad's dream, really. Um, We'd put a dam in. We had yabbies in the dam. We used to go yabbing in the dam. It was our own little oasis, I suppose. Um, We had the shed with the dartboard and, you know, beautiful brand-new home. We still had sheets in the windows and cement floors. But Dad was adamant that we had to move in. Those things would come later. This was our home and we were going to move. So we'd moved into the house and what I was so excited about We were only 1.6 kilometres from the town, but I got to get on a bus and that was exciting for me. So the journey would be you would get on the bus where we lived and instead of going 1.6 kilometres in, I got to do the whole round trip to all the farm properties and get off at the other end. So I had like this 40-minute bus trip where in fact mum could run me into town in three minutes. So I got off the bus this day and we had bit of a dirt road up to our gate to the entrance of our property and I remember getting off the bus with my sister Kerry and this is about four o'clock in the afternoon yeah so it was October 22 1981 it would have been just after four and there was a lot of cars parked between the gate and the house which was quite unusual for any time of the day but particularly as a school day and um, so we got off the bus and as we went to walk um we had one of the family friends meet us at the bus and they walked us up the road and just chatted as normal when we went inside the house I could see the back of mum and then I could see the back of one of dad's mates who was a fellow police officer and I refer to him as my uncle Norm because he was very much they were very close to our family he had been a detective with Dad at Mount Barker, but Dad was now in that commissioned role in the city. And um, we were quite concerned, like, what, what's going on? Because there was a lot of police there. There was probably half a dozen uniformed police plus bosses in our dining room, outside on the phone. Um, 
and well, it would have been the radio actually because I don't think there would have been mobiles then. And um, I went inside and we've said to mum what's happening and Uncle Norm turned around and said, oh, nothing for you to worry about, love. It's just we're not sure where your dad is at the moment. Um, he hasn't showed up where he's supposed to be today so people are out looking for him. And I said, oh, I thought maybe we're having a barbecue for tea. And he said, well, pretty sure we will love as soon as we find Dad. Um, That's a very clear memory. Very clear. That conversation. So clear after, you know, 30-odd, 37-odd years, that conversation's left an indelible impression on you. Why do you think that is? I think it's because... It's just that um, that that uncertainty. It's those it's those things that people think that they're protecting you, but in fact, I think in life I don't deal well now with uncertainty because I, I want transparency. And I remember Mum didn't turn around, and I I felt there was something wrong. Mum couldn't turn around. She couldn't look at you. She couldn't look at me. I, I, in hindsight, she was upset, right? Uncle Norm was doing the the right thing and trying to keep us in the dark and trying to stop the the anxiety or the worry or the fear. But, in fact, it probably actually exacerbates it to a degree. Um, I can tell you... We watched Home and Away. I can tell you we had takeaway chicken and chips... I can tell you exactly what what box they came in. I've got some really strong vision of that night um, in preference to perhaps the next few days are, are much more of a blur. Um, so from that night, we were then sort of, again, I say it with respect, but we were whisked away. I was taken to a friend's house, my friend from school, to stay with her as a sleepover. Um, on a school night, which, oh, my God, wow, that was never allowed. So I sort of just took it as it was in the moment. This is a bit of fun, staying with a friend on a school night, and they'll find Dad. And the next morning? Yeah, that's when it all turned a little bit. Um, I suppose... The, that's when everything changed. So I'm, a, I'm guessing it, it was just daylight, so let's say 5.30, 6 in the morning. I was still in my pyjamas and I got woken by my friend's dad and said that dad's one of dad's family friends called George was here to pick me up and that I needed to go home. And got into the car and my sister Kerry was already in the back seat because she too had stayed with a friend. And um, not a word was spoken. The three of us just in this car, we drove home. Um, we didn't ask anything. George didn't say anything. And when we got to the driveway, there was a heap of media there. So there was TV cameras. Um, wow, 6 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And they were around the gate and they basically had to be moved by the police um, out the way for us to come in. 
I still didn't really know what that meant. Um, and so we walked quietly into the lounge room and I can still remember my sister Julie was lying with her boyfriend, Stephen, in a beanbag, just, I don't, I don't really know, crying or, or upset. Um, and then mum had her head buried in someone's shoulder that had their arm around her. I can't tell who that was. And the neighbour that lived in the property up the road was also a policeman, Mr Gamble, who went on to become an assistant commissioner. Um, we sort of walked into the lounge room. There would have maybe been 10 people in there with the three-seater and the two lounges and then beanbags and... and There was sort of silence and could feel that everyone was looking at us and, and Mr Gamble just looked at us and said, sorry, loveys, but they found Dad and he's not coming home. Um, he's passed on or passed away. And, yeah, I think... don't really remember, I think, just the normal reaction I'm assuming would have been people would have grabbed us because I, I know I was sitting down pretty quickly and um, I said something like what do you mean he's not coming home and they he said oh he's suicided or words to that effect and I didn't know what that meant yeah and mm. I didn't ask mm. I didn't want to feel silly and I don't think I knew to ask it was just I just it all just got thrown at us um and it it's still um I you know from the time I left the night before to the time I arrived back we had the record player that had the three had the double cassettes and then the record player on the top and then the big speakers and mum was playing over and over and over and over hooked on classics mm. and it's really interesting because i'd never listened to hooked on classics since um very clever music and and i only saw the other day hooked on classics coming to do a tour around australia and i thought well and i hadn't ever listened to it since and mm. i actually listened to it the other day and that that was quite a different feeling to hear that yep. music that had repetitively played for like three four days in our house, there was no telly on. We just had, and the telly was on, but that got switched off because all, all the coverage of yeah. was around Dad yeah. and the beach where he was found. Yeah. And yeah, I don't think they wanted us kids to see that. So, so um, the word suicide was mentioned. You didn't quite understand what all that meant. Do you remember when you first did understand what that word meant, and therefore what it was that had happened to your father? Yeah, it would have been some time between then and my memory goes a bit funny on this one. I think I asked before the service, but it might have been in some days after that. Um, but I just said to one of the family friends, what's suicide? I just asked, you know, what's suicide? Um, and they then told me the definition of, you know, somebody you know, taking their life, if you like. Or, and 
then they talked a little bit about how that happened. Mm. And that's when um, I don't think I really analysed it then. I think I just I didn't understand it and I didn't get it and I didn't want to understand it or get it. It's one of those things it was shut down. It was I'd asked it and I was told it and that was about as far as that conversation went. So on reflection, um, you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the family for a long period of time wondering were there signs that they should have noticed, were there things that they should have seen, were there, were there clear symptoms that something was wrong. What's your thoughts around that now on reflection? Oh, there's definitely a lot of signs. But... And there's a lot of accountability where people try and own that. So mum's always tried to own, I should have known this, but I don't get that. And I should have picked up on that, but that didn't make sense. So she's gone from self-blame to blame others, to blame dad to, and that's sort of what I lived with was growing up because being the youngest of three, I was at home the longest, right? So I grew up pretty quick and I, so mum would, mum had recalled to us things like, I remember the night before dad went missing, because I think he went missing on a Tuesday or thereabouts. And on the Monday night, I had a form that I needed to fill out and pay money for, for a school camp. And I was late. And being in grade four, I was pretty stressed about that, that maybe I'd miss out on going on the school camp with my friends. It was aquatics camp really excited but I hadn't paid my 30 odd dollars to go on this camp and it's probably cheaper than that then but and I remember saying something to dad like um he'd come in come in the lounge room late from work and I said dad I haven't paid for my camp he's like yeah 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 well don't worry about that now we'll, we'll get to that and and I sat there quite upset and he got to the 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 we had the round arches then, that was the trend, and he got to the arch to go through to the dining area and he stopped and he came back. I remember him getting down on his knee and apologising, saying, how much do you need, where's your form, and gave me this hug. Well, in hindsight, I think that that was a way of him, he was in this state and he had just completely not acknowledged what I was feeling or said and then he just took that moment and I look at that as was that one of the last interactions that he wanted to have that was that he got right instead of leaving me with that. Um, my one of the things that I know my older sister she's really struggled with was I don't really remember this, but Mum's told us, you know, the morning that Dad left to go to work, the day that he went missing, he came around the kitchen table and there was Mum and my sister Kerry and myself. My older sister, Julie, was on night shift and she was a nurse. So she was actually was, would have been on her way home. And so that she wasn't there. Dad went around and kissed us each and said goodbye instead of using the words similar to see you or catch you tonight or have a good day. It was goodbye. Mm. Um, filled up his car at the local servo that also was a car dealer who was a good mate of his, um, he shook his hand and said, goodbye, Peter, because then they'd come and fill your car for you. 
So, you know, all of those people have pulled those pieces together afterwards, um, even to the fact that um, Dad had said to Mum some days before, if ever I was to die, can you please make sure that you don't give me a police funeral? I don't want to be buried to those bastards. Um, I want to be buried with my mate, Cole, which is Dad's cousin, who had tragically passed in a car accident, um, who was buried at Enfield, where Dad was buried next to his mate, Cole. So he, you know, if that's not a hint, that, that's, a, that's a pretty big sign. But at those times, to say to your partner, you know... Um, whether you look at that, he was in a risky job and, you know, they're always thinking about their well-being or whether he's just having a conversation about, you know, if something was to happen to me because maybe they'd never talked about that. Mm. But a lot of those things were said and I learnt a lot of those little clues, if you like, about um, how quiet Dad had got in weeks before. Mum said he'd lost weight. Um, he wasn't sleeping well. Um, there was a bit of paranoia had set in where he wouldn't use the home phone. He was using the phone box. Um, he even was sleeping with a firearm by his bed. So one would think all that came with that job, but whether a lot of that was to do with his thought processes or where he was at. So you think it was a deterioration in mental health over an extended period of time or were there things that were happening for him that were causing him to feel completely overwhelmed and out of control in that moment? I think it's the later of the two. Okay. Definitely. I don't think from what I've learned and from all of the information that I've gathered that he was mentally unstable where he'd had a breakdown and... He was not, you know, completely well. I don't, I don't see it as that. I think that there was a lot of pressure on him and his role um, on a lot of the things that he knew and he was exposed to. And I think that there was a lot of influence coming from different directions that his life got too tough. Um. And, you know, if you want to talk about clues, he, he left letters, okay, and he left three letters. He wrote letters to his boss about, he quotes exhibit numbers in one of the letters, that evidence that needs to be referred to, and mm. there was some planning involved here. So to me, I don't see it as um, just in that moment anyone could have said, you know, visualise it and talk about it and I'll snap you out of it. I, I believe that he had a plan and that this was something that he felt there was no other option and this was the right solution for the position that he was in and or his family. Hmm. What does a young teenage girl do to cope with the loss of her father? at such an important and vulnerable age. So talk to me about your teenage years resulting from the loss of your dad at an important time. 
Um, I grew up pretty quick. Um, I still remember one night, keeping in mind, as I said earlier, we didn't have mobiles. I, mum, mum wouldn't sleep in, in their bed. She couldn't do that. So I moved out of my bedroom and mum slept in my room. And mum, you know, mum was a mess. They, they'd met at school. They'd left notes on each other's bike at primary school and they were dating and then married at 19. Um, and that's all she knew. That was, the, that was her only love. And, you know, mum wasn't eating. She was smoking a lot. And I'd wake up in the morning and the bed would be empty. And she'd gone for walks. That was really scary, really, really frightening when you'd lost one parent and another parent's not home. And you didn't know where they'd gone. And it turned out she would walk through the three paddocks and down the gate and talk to the cows and take the dog. And that was... But that she might have been doing that at six in the morning and I'm getting up at ten to seven or whatever and mum's not there. And so this one night, mum had a meltdown and she said to my sister and I, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And she just took off in the car and we didn't know where she'd gone. Um, but we felt that she was potentially going to end things herself. And that was a really scary night for us. We were two kids at home and um, f- I, I, in hindsight, I didn't know I was doing this, but I became the fixer. That's how I describe myself now. I remember, um, you know, mum would cry a lot or mum couldn't find something or um, she'd smashed a glass or and she would cry and I'm like, oh, okay, I got it, I got it, I got it. it's okay, mum, it's okay, mum. Um, I, I became a bit compulsive where I, I didn't want mum, I didn't ever want to see her cry again and I, did, I tried to prevent anything going wrong in life. Um, I hated confrontation and um, the place I felt safe was was my sport where you're in a team and we just – there was a group of friends that I had around me, has still my lifelong friends, um, all been in each other's weddings and, you know, I've got my son's 21st coming up and I can't believe that, that there's all my besties from – high school and my sporting years that you know they're all coming to party with me on the dance floor at our kids 21st like that's just gold um but they become family and uh, you know we would we would play basketball three times a week and then we'd train for our state tournaments all day Saturday all day Sunday and we'd sleep over Saturday night and we would you know watch Greece and on video and um you know eat rubbish and that's that's how I actually that became my life was was sport and pretty well becoming part of other people's families as well and you know mum was on a police pension and you know for those that don't understand how that works it was pretty much 50% of what dad would have earned was basically how that ran so there was straight away there was a financial impact as well so um you know it when i needed to go to a tournament that all cost money it wasn't provided by any funding or any state government so 
myself with mum and other families, we would we would run a car wash to get Amanda on a trip. Um, and th- at the time, I didn't really think. I mean, I look back now and I think, oh goodness, it was only a charity case. But at the time, that's what we did. I remember going around to different places and asking, could they sponsor me? Would they support me? And I door knocked myself to different businesses and. Mm. You know that that's what just all I knew is yeah. you had to earn it and work for it, and I think I built resilience. That's yeah, that's on. where I ended up. When you finished high school, you decided on a career. What was the career you decided on? For a really short time, I, my my very first thing is I, I did do a traineeship with a bank, and I didn't love it, and I. I can't even tell you what happened, but I'd always wanted to be a teacher or join the police force. You know, when people ask kids when they're 12, what do you want to do when you grow up? They were my two things. Well, I was a bit of a... Oh, I was a bit of a socialiser in high school, let's be honest. I, I didn't get the score that I wanted to be able to go to uni. And it was more so than that. I could have actually done teaching. I don't think we could have afforded it, you know, we for mum you know with me to go to uni so I worked for a bank did a traineeship and then I joined the police force what was that like to put the uniform on that first time uh, very emotional um so the same person that told me Mr Gamble that dad wasn't coming home he presented me with the Ducks Award at Fort Larks Police Academy when he was then an Assistant Commissioner of Police. Um, so he's presented me my award and given me my medal and leant across and said, your dad's proud right now. What a great moment. Absolutely. Mm. What a great moment. What a great moment for him as well Mm. what a special time how long did you stay in the police force about 14 years and what was it like there was there was pros and cons so i came in and developed my own family starting with you had 12 months at the academy with say 20 course members and you get pretty tight that they become really good, good people. Um, I wasn't a runner <laughs> and, you know, I'd, I'd be right at the back, another girlfriend and I, we'd be running last and a little bloke called Peter, <laughs> he was so quick, you know, he'd do the 2.5k run in under 10 minutes and we'd, we'd be lucky to do it in 14 and he'd run that last lap with us. That, that was the sort of, they had your back. Mm. The job, as they call it, or the boys in blue, majority all had each other's back, and it is a really, really tight knit group to the point of, you know, it's almost this kind of silence, and nobody, you know, talks outside, and it's all because it was so strong. There was a lot that didn't want to talk about dad, um, so people might actually say, oh, "Are you Jeff's daughter? Or are you Wit's daughter?" And I'd say, "Yeah, oh, I heard you joined." And I say, yep, did you know, Dad? Oh, yeah, I did, yeah, I knew a bit. And that might be about all you'd get. 
Others would like to tell worries. And there were some that would say, yeah, one day when you're not in this job, I'll, I'll tell you a few things okay. about your dad. Mm. So, mm. I, and, you know, I think I parked a lot of that because that's not why I was there. I was there to be a fixer. Um, I look at a little bit. There was a bit of legacy there too. So if you look at, Were you, you trying know, to fix that legacy in some form? Yeah, I, I think it's more of the AFL player, his son can play. He gets picked up in the draft. You know, I think it was more of um, I, I wasn't looking for anything special, but I've had dad and dad's cousin and his brother. So they'd already been three Whitfords in the job that were immediately related to me. And I was quite proud of being a Whitford working in the police force in South, South Australia. And I think in a way... I. I, I can't put it to words, but I think I had a point to prove that I'm going to finish what Dad mm. started. Mm. How has it um, shaped you? How has it, it influenced your life? There's a lot of years where things didn't feel great. Um, anxiety, mm -hmm. depression, particularly postnatal. I hated my dad when I brought my eldest baby home from hospital. Because he wasn't there? No, because he chose to bring a life into this world. And when I chose, I thought, well, I've made a pledge here. There's no okay. way I would bring this life here mm. and, and allow to be gone before they are. Mm. I, I was really peeved. And that he hadn't met his obligation yes. to you as his daughter. I saw things completely differently when mm. I became a parent. Mm. And I thought, what sort of parent were you? And I was angry. And I still remember sitting on that step and I had tears rolling. And I couldn't, I couldn't understand it, that... You know, he had three children and we were his girls. He called us his girls and we were his world. And mum had said to him for years, if that job gets too tough, you know what you're calling is, chuck it in and we'll run a pub. That was their plan. And so it all just, you know, I was 26, my first child, I'd known what it was like to be a copper. I didn't get it. And in some ways, I don't think I was a good mum for those first few months because it really played with my head. So that really impacted me. Hmm. How long did it take for you to reconcile that or is it unreconciled still? It's reconciled now because I learned how to share my story mm. so that I can bring some positive to what my dad did. So I, I love him now because I've met him through writing my mm. book. That's lovely. And I forgive him. And I'm trying to turn my grief and my anger now into positive 
feelings and gratitude if I can go that far to say that what I've been through I can help use now to try and deter or educate others on what that impact can look like. So what what would you say to others? You know, what's the wisdom that comes from your experience that you think is really important for you to pass on to someone who might be listening and experiencing something maybe similar to yourself from a bereaved perspective or feeling that anger or that that emotion or that uh, frustration with the decision? What, What do you say to them? Well, suicide is real. Um, don't be embarrassed or ashamed to talk about it if you're comfortable to do that. It, um, it's your choice. And I remind myself that they didn't mean to hurt us. Um, that was never their intention. And we can't we can't change what's happened but we can try and influence or help reduce stigma but reduce these types of outcomes and you know it's i felt this huge sense of relief to be able to finally have these types of conversations like you and I having now, Lane, where we can just talk about what's happened and 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 how I felt, and you know, I've I've talked about this in a number of formats, and every time it feels different, and I come away sometimes exhausted, sometimes upset, and sometimes feeling that I've really achieved something. And that's just, I don't know, it's helped me. I'm allowed to be who I am now. I'm actually allowed to be that person that I've tried to hide. So you found an identity? Yeah. I was always trying to be who I think others wanted me to be and what I was trying to meet expectations and who I was perceived and... You know, the, the ironic thing there is I do see feel my dad in me and that's scary mm. because a lot of what I've learned is my dad's highest, highest self-value was his integrity and how others perceived him. And there's a really strong argument that that's what took his life was that he wasn't going to live up to the expectation of others. And I've got so much of that in me. Mm. And I'm trying to say it's okay to just be Amanda. Mm. I'm still learning that. Mm. And I'm still learning to try not to fix everyone else's problems. (laughs) But this journey in sharing my story is helping me to put some relevance into what is worth worrying about in life. Well, we're happy that um, yeah, I'm, I'm happy that you've taken the opportunity to share it with our um, listeners wherever they are. Um, yeah, a story not told is just an internal dialogue, isn't it? 
And uh, at the moment, you found the courage to be able to express your story, then the wisdom and the knowledge that comes from that story is now able to help others. And I'm sure there are many, many others out there who are going to listen to this podcast and are going to um, really resonate with your courage to, um, to, and your message of, uh, of, of finding your dad. I just love that whole concept of, you know, you got to know him um, through your research and, and, and how that's shaped you and, and, and everything that you do and how you parent and how you, you live your, your life. So thank you so much for being so open and honest. And um, you've gifted me the book uh, today. Yeah, uh, I did. So I'm going to read that and I'm going to read it um, uh, and I'm going to really enjoy it. And uh, I thank you so much for being part of Rose's Radio today. Thank you, Lane. Thank you for the opportunity. Mm-hmm.